Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series entitled, Christianity's Family Tree. In this series, we're exploring the different branches and denominations of the Christian Church. Join us now for the message, Catholicism, I Believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. I'm Jane Grainer and I'm the senior pastor. And back by popular demand, uh, I'm Wesley McCall and I'm the music director. And we welcome all of you to worship with us today, particularly if any of you out there may be worshiping with us for the first time. Stay tuned because we're going to be talking about uh, what can we learn from a church that has popes and rosaries and a seeming obsession with the Virgin Mary? Well, the answer is plenty. So stay tuned for our message today, Catholicism, I Believe in the Holy Catholic Church. This is going to be part of our new sermon series that started last Sunday entitled Christianity's Family Tree. And we'll be discussing and exploring all the different denominations that make up the great Christian church all the way around the world. And I hope you stay tuned for the entire series. I'd also like to invite you, if you have not done so already, to please make an offering to the ministry of this church so that we can keep this live cast going. You can do that through our website, tumcd.org. You can just mail a check to the church, or you can do that through our Church Center app. And now let us enter into a spirit of worship and prayer through this centering psalm. From Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and the dry land which his hands have formed. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. And now for our opening prayer. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. Amen. Our opening prayer was uh, one small part of a larger prayer called the Breastplate of St. Patrick, and it's one of my favorite prayers that we, uh, we have received from our Catholic heritage. And now, even though we cannot be together in the same space, we are together in the same time. So my prayer for you is peace be with you. Our prayer for illumination. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditation of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. 
Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate and died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. The word of God for the people of God. As I revealed last week, when I received my genetic profile, it corroborated all the stories that I had been told about the history of my family. We are basically Western European mutts. Lots of DNA from uh, the British Isles, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England with a good measure of French and German blood thrown in there. Now, my last name, Grainer, is German. And back in 2002, my family had the opportunity to go and visit our ancestral village in Jungnau, Germany, which is located in the southwestern quadrant of that country. And it was from Jungnau, uh, sometime in the mid-19th century, that my great-great-grandfather, Johann Gruner, set out to immigrate to America. Now, while we were in Jungnau, we were able to visit the village church where, where generations of Gruners were baptized into Christendom. And I wanted to show you here a photograph of the inside of that church that we got to visit and see where all of my ancestors were baptized. Um, by the way, I've never received a good explanation about how the name Gruner which is spelled G-R-Umlaut-O-N-E-R, became Grainer, G-R-A-N-E-R. But, you know, that's what happens when people immigrate to America. Oftentimes their names get changed. Well, Johan eventually settled in Iowa. He got married, and he and his wife had four sons. And these four brothers together moved to Henrietta, Texas, which is near Wichita Falls. And it was there that they built and operated the Grainer Opera House. Now, we have an old photo of the four Grainer brothers all on horseback with the, the city square in the distance where Grainer Opera House was located. And we now refer to this photograph as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Among these Grainer brothers was my great-grandfather, Edward Albert Grainer. Now, we have an old newspaper article about how Edward Albert and his wife were charter members of the local Roman Catholic Church, and they were instrumental in its founding. The article talked about how Edward Albert had hosted a, a very large church picnic there on his property as that Roman Catholic Church was in the process of being established. Now, what comes next is part of just Grainer family lore. Evidently, at one point, Edward Albert became gravely ill, 
and it was feared that he was about to pass away. So the local priest was called in to perform the last rites. But upon seeing the priest enter the room, Edward Albert flew into a rage. How dare you insinuate that he was near death? He was not, you were not going to get rid of him that easily. He then swore at the priest, threw him out of the house, and then he proceeded to quickly and promptly uh, regain his health and live for several more death decades. And that is how the Grainers became Protestants. He never again set foot into a Roman Catholic church. And evidently, Edward Albert was an, ex an eccentric character in many other ways as well. Uh, years ago, when we were all cleaning out my grandmother's house, I found a newspaper article detailing how Edward Albert had sued the King of England. Now, we have no records of what the uh, outcome of that lawsuit turned out to be, but it does seem as if the British royal family has somehow been able to survive the legal challenge that it faced from Edward Albert Grainer. Now, most of us, if you go back far enough, will find ancestors who were part of the Roman Catholic Church. For those of us of European descent, the Roman Catholic Church is just part of our collective heritage. A billion people, that is half the world's Christians, are Roman Catholic. It is by far the largest of Christendom's denominations. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church is the world's oldest and largest institution of any kind in all of history. It is also the largest denomination in America. According to the Pew Research Center, there are 51 million Catholics in the United States, roughly 20% of the population. The next two denominations, Southern Baptist and United Methodist, they don't even come close. Uh, Catholics are 20%, while Southern Baptists are 5.3% of the population, and United Methodists constitute only 3.6%. Now, not all Catholics are Roman Catholics. In the United States, there are a total of 10 different Catholic denominations, but Roman Catholics make up like 99% of American Catholics. So it is the Roman Catholic Church to which we will be referring uh, as we continue to explore. And when people think of the Catholic Church, it is the Roman Catholic Church that they are thinking of. Now, in our creeds, we affirm our belief in the Holy Catholic Church. The word Catholic means universal. So when we recite the creeds, we are affirming that all Christians are part of this universal church. Now, when we see all the divisions that are in the earthly church, I, it does come to the point that believing in church unity becomes a matter of faith because it is hard to see that unity in practice. Now, recall from last week that we talked about how there were three main branches in the Christian church. There's Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and uh, Protestantism. And for a thousand years, though, there was only one church. But in the year 1053, the Eastern and Western parts of the church separated from each other in what was called the Great Schism. And both the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church, they both claim to be the one true church that is descended directly from the original apostles. Now, being both equally ancient, Orthodoxy and Catholicism, they do share some similarities 
that differentiate them from Protestantism. While all Christians look to Scripture as the foundational source of Christian theology and doctrine, the Orthodox and Catholic churches place much more emphasis on tradition and grant it a far higher degree of authority than do Protestants. Both Orthodox and Catholic believe that the Holy Spirit has continued to speak to the churches and to safeguard its doctrines from error. It is the church and its early ecumenical councils, they would argue, that defined which books would be included in the Bible. And the books of the Christian Bible were not set until the Council of Rome in the year 382 AD, which was centuries after any of the books, including the New Testament books, were written. It is further believed that Scripture can only be properly interpreted within the church, where the Holy Spirit continues to guide its theological and doctrinal development. It is also the church and the councils that define the basics of Christian doctrine as set out in such creeds as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, both of which are part of our Methodist heritage and are found in our United Methodist Book of Worship. But as that first millennium of Christian history unfolded, Catholicism began to differentiate itself from Eastern Orthodoxy. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, its emphasis on tradition is strongly weighted to the first five centuries of the Church's history. Uh, one Orthodox writer even admitted that there really hasn't been any great Orthodox theologians in the past 1,500 years. The feeling is that after the outline of Orthodox theology was set by the creeds in the early church councils, there was really nothing much left new to say. By contrast, Catholics see church tradition as more of a living tradition that continues to this very day. And so, therefore, the Catholic Church has continued to churn out great theologians and Bible scholars and spiritual writers throughout its history. And this attitude is also reflected in the doctrine of papal infallibility. Even now, the Pope's writings are considered infallible whenever he is speaking within his office as church teacher. Therefore, it is thought the Holy Spirit continues to still reveal new truth to the church. As one Catholic theologian says, the Holy Spirit has given the church the deposit of faith and continues to guide the church. Just as Jesus promised his disciples on that last night he spent with them so long ago before his crucifixion. We read of that night in the Gospel of John where Jesus says to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Catholics' belief in this Holy Spirit's continual guidance of the church is part of the reason that there are many elements of Catholic doctrine and theology that, that puzzle us Protestants, because we don't see much of a basis for it in Scripture. And these include such doctrines as purgatory and limbo, as well as many of the beliefs surrounding Mary, the mother of Jesus. For example, Catholics believe in the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Uh, sometimes we get confused. We think the Immaculate Conception is about Jesus's virginal birth, but actually the Immaculate Conception 
is the belief that Mary herself, in her conception, was conceived without original sin. And Catholics also believe in her perpetual virginity throughout her entire life and in her bodily assumption into heaven directly after her death. And by contrast, Catholics then also take issue with how us Protestants interpret Scripture. And this is how one Catholic theologian put it. The Bible became the arm of the Protestant revolt. A silent and difficult book was substituted for the living voice of the church in order that each one should be able to make for himself a religion that suited his feelings. And the Bible, open before every literate man and woman to interpret for themselves, was the attractive bait used to win adherents. Not the solid rock of truth, but the shifting sand of private judgment is the foundation upon which Protestantism is built. Well, that's quite an indictment, but I think the, the statement really does have uh, a great deal of truth when in it, uh, within it. While there have been some breakaway churches in the Orthodox and Catholic branches of the Christian family tree, it's nothing like we see in the splintering that happened in the Protestant branch of that tree. While I wish everyone would routinely read scripture regularly on their own, there really is no substitute for interpreting scripture within a community of faith and with the guidance of the church, particularly uh, the knowledge uh, of our biblical scholars. And I think one of today's most troubling trends is the idea that spirituality is, being, is increasingly becoming seen as a solitary activity. One of the things that Catholicism can teach us Protestants is the worth and value and even the necessity of the institutional church. For all of its failures and foibles, spiritual community is a critical component of spiritual growth. And I believe it is utter madness for us to throw out 2,000 years of wisdom that can be found in the church's teachings and traditions and theology. And part of that tradition is the tradition surrounding Christian worship. And here again, I think Catholicism has a lot to teach us Protestants. There have been times in history uh, that some have tried to get rid of all the visual elements that are used in worship, seeing them as nothing more than a graven image promoting idolatry. And such persons are called iconoclasts. And they have popped up uh, time and again in history, and they were particularly active in the 8th and 9th centuries. And during this time, all the art was taken out of the churches, and often it was destroyed. This movement is um, one of the reasons why we have lost so much of the early uh, Christian art that was destroyed by them. But finally, there at the beginning of the 10th century, the church officially approved the use of art and images in its buildings. Many of the early Protestants were also iconoclast, and they also sought to strip all the art out of the churches. For them, it was a damnable distraction. Along with art, they tried to take out much of the sacrament and liturgy as well, as well as the paraments and the altar and the vestments on the ministers. Worship, it was thought, should be spiritual and not sensual, based solely upon the word of God. In fact, the reformer John Calvin wanted people to be able to read the Bible in their own language for themselves 
so that we could get rid of all the visual instruction that was provided by all that statuary and stained glass. The thing is, Christianity is an embodied religion. One of our most foundational doctrines is the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. God created us as embodied creatures made in the image of God, and then God took on flesh and blood in Christ. Our worship needs to acknowledge our embodiment. Worship needs to be both spiritual and sensual because we were created as both spiritual and sensual beings. We need music and art and liturgy and rituals and bells and smells and movement, seasons and sacrament. If we are to love God with all of our hearts, souls, mind and strength, then our worship needs to appeal to our hearts and our souls and our mind and our strength. I think one of the reasons that people feel so close to God while they are in nature is precisely because when we are in nature, all part of us, all parts of us are being stimulated. Being in nature is a very embodied and immersive experience. Uh, we see the beauty of the landscape. We hear the birds. We smell the vegetation. Uh, our bodies are in motion. The same is true for travel. I love travel because it is an embodied and immersive experience through which I grow as both a person and as a disciple of Jesus Christ. The same should be true of worship. Now, the, the future of the church, as I've said on many occasions, is hybrid. Going forward, we will be both an in-person and an online organization. But if you're like me, I have so missed the immersive and embodied experience that is in-person worship. Our need for bodily presence within the beloved community is never going to be completely replaced by virtual experience. This need for embodied experience is part of the reason that the physical beauty of the sanctuary is so important for worship. The stained glass, the pyramids on the altar, uh, the banners on the wall, they're all part of the total worship experience. It's part of the reason that I wear a clerical collar and that while I lead worship in person, I'm wearing a robe with a stole that matches the color of the season. It's why I cross myself when I, see the, when I say the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We need this embodied experience. It's why sacrament, which is a physical manifestation of spiritual grace, can be so transformational. We receive the water of baptism and the bread and wine of communion, these very, these very physical and very tangible elements as vehicles and means of God's grace. Transitioning to online communion has been an adjustment, to say the least, and I am grateful that we have been able to share communion virtually. And I hope it's been meaningful for all of you as well, but I do look forward to that day when we can once again share sacrament with each other in person. In the meantime, until that day comes, I hope that when you share communion at home, that you're treating the elements with, with a high degree of respect. You can do this by either consuming the entirety of any leftover elements or returning them to nature. Uh, if you don't drink all of your wine or grape juice, then go outside and pour it into, into the ground to nurture the plants. If you don't consume all of the bread, 
then go out and spread it in your lawn and let it be the food of the insects of the ground and the birds in the air. Let them continue to nourish your bodies as well as God's good creation. This reverence for sacrament is something we have inherited from our Catholic siblings. Catholic worship, furthermore, is centered on Holy Communion. In the sacrament, Catholics believe that they are truly taking in the physical body and blood of Christ. In the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, it is believed that the substance of the elements of the bread and wine actually become the substance of the body and blood of Christ, even if their outward appearance is unchanged. In fact, the misunderstanding of this doctrine by the early church's pagan neighbors resulted in the early Christians being accused of cannibalism because their pagan neighbors heard that they were eating the body and blood of their founder. By contrast, most Protestants believe that the elements of bread and wine are a symbolic memorial of Christ's suffering, death, and sacrifice. Most United Methodists, however, might be surprised that Methodist doctrine is, in a way, closer to Catholic doctrine. We believe that Holy Communion is more than just a symbolic recreation of the events of Good Friday. We believe that Christ is truly present in the elements and in the actions of communion. And this is referred to as the real presence of Christ. When we talk about real presence, uh, we actually capitalize real presence. And this real presence doctrine, we believe that that Christ is really and truly present. But unlike Catholics, we don't try to explain or nail down the exact metaphysics of how this happens. We just believe that Christ is truly and really uh, really present. And when we understand the sacrament in this way, uh, then when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, we can perceive his words on, on a deeper level. We can can perceive now a deeper level of meaning in his words. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. When we reverence sacrament, we then start to realize that all of life can be sacramental if we are open to the possibilities of grace. You see, the Holy Spirit is everywhere already permeating every element in creation as well as permeating our very bodies. All Christians then are part of this one holy Catholic and apostolic church called out for a sacred purpose and sent out into a world in desperate need of God's grace. We are then the embodiment of Jesus Christ on earth. So I ask you, what will the world, the world that God so loved that he sent his only begotten son, what will this world see when it looks at the church? Well, hopefully it will see the face of Christ. Amen. And now, With the confidence of the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. During this next week, keep in mind, remember that all of life can be sacramental if we are open to the possibilities of grace. And now for this, receive this benediction, which also comes from St. Patrick's breastplate. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of you. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to you. Christ in every eye that sees you. Christ in every ear that hears you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Love your neighbor, go in peace. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us next Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next week, we'll be exploring the Lutheran Church as we continue our sermon series, exploring the different branches and denominations of the church in Christianity's family tree. If you can't join us live, you can always listen to the recording of our service. You'll find that on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Thank you.